What follows is my appearance on the Loco Foco podcast. In it, I discuss some of the ideas in my Black Box episode with host Timothy Verkula. Tim is one of the most interesting thinkers I've ever met, and I still remember some of his comments from 25 years ago, including his observation that risk needs to be treated like a transaction cost. Without further ado, here's my appearance on the Loco Foco podcast. My name is Timothy Verkula, and years ago, Matt and I worked in the same operation in Port Townsend, Washington. It was a little thing called Liberty Magazine. Now we are on the opposite ends of the country, but still interested in the same kinds of subjects. But I think we've learned something since then, since our days as fairly young people in the vineyards of Liberty. So now is the time to really get to the heart of the epistemic challenge of our time, which, thankfully, Matt can put in colorful and instructive terms. So let's get to it. I think we're basically fairly epistemically challenged right now in terms of how we try to understand the world. And one of the biggest challenges we have is that the powers that be, so to speak, have decided that it's okay to throw things into a black box. And then when people try to figure out what's in that black box, if they're making wild predictions, they go, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, oh, just trust us, you know, what's in the box is what we tell you is in the box. And it puts people in a fairly uncomfortable position where you can either just speculate and then maybe you do sound like a a conspiracy theorist, or you can accept the what they're saying, in which case you, you know, you're just accepting whatever you're told, or you can try to reason about the black box, but that's often very hard when you're in a position of differential knowledge and you really can't look inside of it. Yeah, it's it's an astounding moment in our time. But in a sense, we've always been there to some degree. I mean, this is not new in a in a you know global sense. It's just now it's really clear. Don't you think that's the case? I, I think there is something to that. I'm, so the art, one of the arguments I made in the podcast was that Americans overall have a fairly low tolerance for being told, don't look over here. Uh, but at the same time, we do also have a fairly long history of hiding secrets. Um, and, you know, some things that are just astounding. It wasn't that long ago that I heard about the uh, the balloons that Japan apparently floated over in the atmosphere to try to land in the U.S. I see you nodding. You, you know about that story. It was only a couple of years ago that I heard about that, but that was amazingly hidden from the general public that this was happening throughout the entire war and I guess most of the the post-war period. So there's certainly been lots of of secrets that have been kept, even secrets that involve obviously a large number of people um, and information that's been hidden. And there might be something to the argument that now that we have the internet, it's just easier to dig in and find those things. But I also don't, at least in my lifetime, remember arguments that went essentially like, you know, pay no attention to what's going on over there, do not ask questions, do not dig in. And I think part of that has to do with the amount of power that uh, cultural power, intellectual power, I should maybe say academic power, that a certain faction has that they're able to basically say, hey, you quit digging around over here um, and stop asking questions. What do you think? Yeah, that seems to be true. But how do you square it with, let's say, the third rail in politics? For years, Social Security was a third rail, as they said. It's still kind of of a third rail. Almost no one ever talks about it. The very nature of it is routinely lied about. 
right? I mean, people pretend it's something that it's not. And then they stake a great deal of uh, their personal investment as well as their financial investment in a system that's not, not understood as it is. And so in a sense, this all this newer understanding of black boxes of, you know, of all these systems that we don't understand seems an awful lot like some of the main ones that I've been thinking about for 40 years now. Yeah, those are almost like, I don't know if this is a distinction or not, but to some extent, those are almost like open secrets. Like, everybody knows that Social Security is bankrupt. Everybody knows that anybody below a certain age is hosed. Uh, but, you know, I guess to some extent, those are almost like, yeah, it's an open secret, but everybody knows it, but what are you going to do about it kind of situations? I don't know what the resolution would be there. Like, you can open up the box, you can look at it, you can say it's bankrupt, what are you going to do about it? Right. In some ways, though, it's a little bit like UFOs, which you actually mentioned in your piece, that you have it in your title, uh, in that, um, you know, they're there's lots of information that the U.S. government has been studying UFOs for years. There's admirals and generals with memos to each other saying that UFOs are real and they're not man-made and they're, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, there are these things that came out through FOIA requests. So it's kind of an open secret too, but that's not how it's treated. That's a good point. It's definitely not treated, or at least until this past year or so where it seems like the pace of those leaks or bits of information that come out or has increased but traditionally yeah it's been treated as only you know only conspiracy theorists wander into these areas anybody who does is discrediting themselves or, or as i put it in the piece more like making themselves a kook uh which is you know yesteryear's more gentle form of someone who has to be canceled is just someone who's kind of out on a limb or a weirdo um and and that has existed for a very long time i guess for me i I don't know what to think about UFOs. Uh, so it's, it is it is a black box to me still, even with those leaks. Is there something going on? It seems like it. What is it? I have no idea. Yeah, and that's the position we're all in. And that's, that's why this is an interesting subject and why I think it has to be dealt with openly, as opposed to how everybody who's smart, that's you know, our class and up, <laughs> you know, academics and journalists and so have routinely done so. Yeah, it's like you can't you can't question that because that's only what Neanderthals might do. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's something that I did not question until fairly recently. I came at the UFO subject rather back, you know, backwardsly. You know, I've always loved science fiction, but, you know, to me, science fiction, as the joke went, Reality is for people who can't handle science fiction. For those of us who can handle science fiction, UFOs seemed like just science fiction that's repackaged as fiction or as fact. And so we looked at those people as kind of dumbasses, right? That's how I always looked at UFO people, you know, people who talked about it as dumbasses. And then I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. I had no knowledge of the information. I had no knowledge of the lore. I, it was all just prejudice on my part. So I stopped my, I just changed my attitude almost overnight about, about right about the time when the, uh, uh, to the stars Academy and the ATIP program became apparent, but I was prepared for it by a few other major changes of mind that I had. 
like my understanding of the end of the ice age huh uh, when I began researching that, then I realized that many of the paradigms, scientific paradigms that I knew and what was considered acceptable to talk about, they were being regulated by social controls. That is this attitude of, you know, those, those are the dumbasses, those are the people who, who are nuts, and we can't talk about that subject. Well, that was what was talked about was with catastrophism until fairly recently. And still, in many regards, you're not allowed to talk about it in an academic setting with confidence right you can't explore it easily because there's a taboo and when i realized how strong the taboo was and how people have had their careers ruined because they broke the taboo uh, or barely survived academically because they broke the taboo then all of a sudden i couldn't really maintain my uh, bigotries i think i that's mainly what i've done the last several years is i put away a few bigotries i no longer look down upon the people that i used to look down upon I did do some thinking about it, not in terms of that much research, but I wrote an article for uh, statisticsblog.com, which I ran for a number of years, about dumb arguments by smart people. And one of them was the argument that I called uh, three guys with a board or four guys with a board, something like that. And it had to do with crop circles. And whenever this would come up, and I did do a little bit of looking at the crop circle thing, Whenever one of those would pop up, people would say, oh, yeah, that was debunked. There were three guys with boards who made that in a field. And looking into the, a little bit, even just a tiny bit into the evidence behind these, the elaborateness of the, the designs, how they sprung up, and comparing that to the three guys who did go out in a field and do something with a board and some string, there was just no comparison between what you'd see, you know, in a kind of a real crop circle or something that was a, a phenomenon that we didn't understand versus what you could actually do with a, a few guys in the dead of night and get done in one night or whatever. So one of the the kind of the dumbest arguments that I that I hear made, and it's used, of course, for uh, crop circles, but I see it more broadly, too, is basically, oh, that was debunked because, you know, some guys were able to replicate it in a low-grade way, in some way, whatever. And it's like, no, epistemology doesn't really, it doesn't work like that. You have to actually dig into the evidence of that specific item and see if there's something there. And you see that applied throughout. You see it applied to UFO stuff, too. It's like, oh, yeah, there was that, uh, it was just a fake that they did that because that alien autopsy thing was bullshit. And yeah, the alien autopsy, autopsy thing was clearly bullshit but you can't just go use that to discredit all the rest even though certainly some people would like to use that as a as a way of dismissing everything because you found this one thing that uh that didn't hold up yeah we're in an interesting position because there are some people who use this prejudice of ours to use we say three three people three guys in a board yeah three guys uh, with boards or whatever yeah that's that's a pretty good uh, way of characterizing that argument because it is a prejudice because we are on our we're always looking for being you know faked and if we find a fake then we just yeah those are fakes and uh, if you're dealing with something that seems improbable like ufos or or something even weirder like uh, the stability of the continued stability of the western governments 
Uh, I mean, that's another thing that that people seem to shy away from talking about in any meaningful way. Um, you get the evidence for some kooky thing, and then you take that as the way to dismiss the whole subject. And some people know how to manipulate that. That's apparently what the CIA has been doing regarding quite a few issues, perhaps JFK assassination. I don't know. It's only something I've read a few books on. It's not something I know a great deal about. Uh, UFOs is another. Uh, but there might be a number of issues where that's been the way that we that elites of whatever kind can just run roughshod over open inquiry. Is that if you put out disinformation, then people won't take in the information and won't know how to determine which is information and which is disinformation. So it's all kooky, right? And if it, if it's improbable on the beginning, you know, on the outset, on the very basic idea like UFOs seem awfully improbable, uh, then we can just dismiss it. Uh, but apparently we can't. That's what it, that's what the data seems to be. Is we apparently we can't dismiss UFOs, and we can't dismiss the idea that Western governments are insolvent in an important way that could be very disastrous and seem to be heading there, and it's causing a great deal of anxiety among the elites. So they're doing all sorts of weird things now. And now we sound like conspiracy theorists. Just that little trajectory of, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. And disinformation has been a part of how they keep us thinking along those lines. So I definitely want to talk about that insolvency and collapse thing in general. It's very fascinating. But before, I want to make sure I pick up on, you're saying that the CIA, that these organizations are deliberately putting out fake information in order to make inquiry into perhaps real information that reveals the same thing. So like fake UFO photos as a way to discredit UFO inquiry. Basically, they're sending out three guys with boards to, you know, to create these fake crop circles and then going, eh, it's all a fake. Look, you know, that's nonsense. That's just these three guys. We caught them. We went out into the field. We found them doing it. Well, we have evidence for that. The, uh, the, U the U.S. military has been caught on this kind of thing. They made one, they just ruined one guy's life because of how they got him out of his inquiry. Now, he was onto something that he thought was different, and they made him believe it was UFOs and not a military project. This is a famous case, and I've forgotten the name of the, the – uh, there's, a, there's a documentary about it. But this kind of uh, disinformation campaign is something FBI and CIA and other – and military organizations have been doing for a long time. We don't know the extent of them because they don't tell us. I mean, they, you know, one of the secrets of good disinformation is that you don't tell us when it's disinformation. Right. You keep them guessing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it throws confusion on the whole issue. And uh, this might be one of the ways that um, conspiracies actually do work. Is that, you know, I, what I was always taught and what I grew up thinking was that conspiracies are unlikely because it's hard to get people to keep secrets. You know, the more people you have in a conspiracy, the harder it is to maintain the conspiracy. And therefore, conspiracies, you know, vast conspiracies are just so unlikely. But what if the people who are conspiring not only have a threat system in place, but they also have a way of making everything seem stupid? Is if you could discredit every, or many, enough in, uh, increase into it, then all of a sudden, um, the whole thing looks, it's corrupted. It's a—it's uh, corrupting the pool of information. And that's a very successful way of getting people off the trail. Uh, one of the great um, UFO inquirers, a scientist named Jacques Vallée, I don't know if you've come across him, but he said that 
scientists are very easy to fool. This is something that a number of, you know, James Randi used to say. James Randi used to say that scientists are the easiest people to fool in terms of magic because magicians know something different than the scientists do. They're operating on a different wavelength. It's kind of a more propagandistic and tricky. They're, they're tricksters. But Jacques Vallée says that you have to approach the issue of UFOs not as a scientist in the normal way. You have to approach, approach it as a crime scene. Oh, because it's been yeah. corrupted already by the way people look at it and their interventions into the subject itself. Yeah, this is interesting to me because it it almost it creates something that's even worse than a black box. The black box, if it's sealed tight, you know, you can't pry it open, you can't shake it, you can't inspect it, you can't do anything. Uh, but, you know, maybe there's some metadata you can use to tease out what's inside of it in some way. But in this case, you've, you know, you've so thoroughly corrupted everything that, you know, um, you're, you know, you, how can you even do an inquiry? You lift up the lid and what was there is gone and has been replaced with some other substance. And they've taken the real substance and put it elsewhere and then slathered some kind of goo on the inside of the of the box that you can inspect but you have no idea if that's residue from the original substance or whatever it's quite the analogy here we're working on uh but but like it, it is in some sense worse than a black box because you can't even you know you you can't even trust what you do see coming out of it if you can catch a glimpse I don't know. It's, so these are some of the things I've been thinking about recently uh, as I've changed my mind on a few subjects um, and I've become less confident of major paradigms. We have, you know, we have major paradigms in our time that have been proven to be just nonsense, right? Like diet, diet science. Right. That's flipped pretty significantly in our lifetimes, for sure. There were conspiracies involved in setting up the paradigm that we are now coming to reject, right? There were actual interest groups that were making sure that Congress did this or didn't do that. So that's interesting and it's um, worth thinking about. And uh, I come from, you know, I've been involved in the libertarian movement in a, in an odd way for many years. I was part of, you know, I helped run Liberty Magazine when I was younger, when you knew me. And one of the things I find from my skeptical friends, my libertarian friends, often who dismiss all UFOs, and I could name names, I, they're my friends. I, I, we get along real well, but they just find that the idea of talking about this to be nonsense, because it's obvious nonsense. And over and over again, I get this idea that they disapprove of the state. And yet they seem to think that the state just rumbles along in a haphazard and you know, generally benign way that everybody's good intended and it all goes according to, you know, just it's just a kind of a, it's a bad institution, but it's not an evil institution. The funny thing about it is that their theory doesn't say that it's just a, a you know, a, a benignly bad institution, right? It's not, it's not just good intentions. There are legitimate bad intentions all the way through the state. In fact, the state is very corrupting of our, of how we approach society. People are trying to gain advantages over the other over others all the time using the state. That is not a recipe for goodness and righteousness. That's a recipe for all sorts of very strange evil. I mean, that's, you know, malign intent causing harm. People do this all the time through the agency of the state. And my libertarian friends, I think, have taken Milton Friedman's argumentative 
ploys too seriously is to think of the state as not a corrupter, but just simply a bad a floppy institution that we need to improve, right? I don't think that's the case. I think we're dealing with something much more dangerous here. When you try to live at the expense of others, you're willing to do all sorts of weird things, very evil things at times. And so I'm even willing to, you know, consider that maybe I need to change my mind about the basic way we look at the world and the state is more dangerous than I used to think. Because I was a utilitarian when you knew me. You know, 20, 30 years ago, I, I wouldn't mind being called a utilitarian. And I liked the basic academic libertarian way of viewing the social world. I'm less enamored of it now. I think that, well, certainly the state has been particularly dangerous uh, in 2020 with the lockdowns and the extraordinary amounts of power it's usurped and all the lives it's destroyed with its actions. More broadly, I think that we're seeing within both the conservative or right-wing movement and within the libertarian movement too, a split between people who are blue-pilled and red-pilled, to use that phrasing. And there are surprising numbers of what I guess you'd call blue-pilled libertarians or beltway libertarians or whatever who are thinking of themselves perhaps or thinking of the world as there's this institution, we're against it, and we're in kind of this loyal, gallant battle against it. And, you know, and it's maybe it's a knight fighting a dragon or something like that, but it's some noble beast that we want to slay or subdue or restrain in some way. Uh, and the idea that it is not just, you know, a noble, a noble adversary, but that it is an unbounded, perhaps evil in some ways, or an unbounded force that will do anything, say anything, hide any information, lie without any remorse, put out disinfo gladly and without thinking twice about it. That is a, like, I hear libertarians talk about something that appeared in the New York Times as if it's true, you know, and it, it's stunning. It's like, did you miss the last two, three, four, however many years of constant narratives that have unraveled under, you know, under any kind of closer inspection, including have been unraveled by the paper themselves, where they put out one bit of information, and then three weeks later, that fits the narrative, right, always fits the narrative. And then three weeks later, they have to walk that back. And yet you still see people who are like, uh, you know, who are going, who are basing their information, their worldview on that information that's being put out in official channels. And it, it, that seems crazy to me that there are those folks out there who are still blue-pilled, even within the libertarian movement. It's, a, it's an interesting problem. Uh, I like these people, but I have less in common with them all the time. Uh, it's, it's, very, it's a very interesting thing because, you know, in the Days of Liberty, the little magazine I worked on, uh, one of our, we've tried to, every faction we tried to get something from. We wanted people to talk to each other. And that was sort of what we, that was sort of what we did. Though obviously the publisher and I uh, had our own little secret agenda, kind of. This uh, is Bill Bradford for the Bill Bradford. listeners. Yeah. yeah. RIP Bill. Quite a character. Mm -hmm. uh, quite a character. And, um, and our, our little magazine was very odd. I'll have to admit, but it was certainly had lots of ideas in it. And we certainly had lots of different contrary ideas in it. 
and that was something really really enjoyed we didn't want it we didn't want to force one paradigm down everybody's throat though you know a paradigm sort of emerged because bradford and i basically sort of agreed on nearly everything even if we came at everything from different points of view um i'm trying to think of an example i mean we're both musesians kind of uh he was a former anarchist and i got interested in these ideas through anarchy but i never was an anarchist uh he was a former Ayn Rand fan. I was never an Ayn Rand fan. So there was obviously we had a lot in common. Uh, he supported him. He, he considered himself a minimal state advocate. That's That was what his basic idea set were. I, I'm basically just anarchist. I don't know what an ideal society, the political end of a society would be because I think we're so far away from that ideal. But I think we know the direction we should need to go. That hasn't changed in, in 40 years of me being in this part of the political movements, political environment. Um, but I certainly have changed a lot of ideas around that basic perspective. Do you think that the kind of the factions that were brought together in some kind of discourse at, at Liberty no longer are able to have a conversation? Do you think that that's happened or do you still see kind of robust conversation within the libertarian movement? Well, I mean, I think people are still talking to each other though some won't. And I understand that, you know, even in our time, we had troubles, uh, you know, uh, we started out with Murray Rothbard on the masthead. And before he died, he was, he was no longer part of the project, because he and Lou Rockwell, uh, and a few others, you know, stormed out of the participating in what we were doing. I was not a paleo libertarian. And Bill wasn't either. And they wanted us to be paleo libertarians, they wanted it to be a paleo libertarian organ. And we just wouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like ancient history because I like so much of what, I mean, the Mises Institute has done. <laughs> I have nothing against Lou Rockwell. Uh, I, don't, I don't know him, but I like what he accomplished and then what others have accomplished after him. So I don't really hold any animus to these people. So all the animus aspects of the divide now, I don't really feel that. I don't feel, I don't feel any bad feelings to anyone really, maybe with one or two exceptions. But I don't necessarily respect all of the arguments equally. Uh, I'm having a great deal of difficulty with um, the academic wing of the libertarian movement. They seem easy to convince that Biden is a better idea than Trump. And I think that that's a, a hot topic of debate at the very best. Uh, I don't see, I would never have voted for Biden in any, in any I can't imagine any situation where that would have been possible. And I found that these people didn't seem to understand the culture of the current culture war. They seem to be caught up in whatever it was they were thinking 20 years before. When, you know, Biden would look better because, you know, at least he wasn't this weird guy, right? That's, that's you know, this authoritarian. I think that um, what maybe academics and others haven't fully tuned into is that very little of the action right now is debate over policy like that. That's not so much happening. That's not kind of the moment where we're at. Um, it's, it seems very much more about culture. And then I guess as the, the famous Breitbart saying goes, the politics is downstream of the culture. But I think that that's way, way more so the case now than ever before. And certainly the, 
the lockdown stuff itself was driven by 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 forces that were not political that or that were that turned out to have very strong political implications but were you know fear or culture or the the moment of mass kind of just Vinarmani, who I had on my show, called it the rise of the matriarchy and described the ways in which the moment we're in is one of of decentralization, but going along with that decentralization is essentially a kind of mob rule, the hashtag movements and those kind of things. And that, I guess, would be a perfect example of a cultural thing like the you know hashtag believe believe women believe all women whatever that's not that's not a political slogan you don't take that and go okay this is the policy that we want out of that it's not you know uh, hashtag abolish the you know the IRS or end the fed that's a political kind of slogan but the things that have caught fire are the ones that are that have to do with culture and then people use that for their own political ends. So, you know, the uh, Believe Women hashtag was used to hammer on Kavanaugh, but not to hammer on certain other people. It wasn't about the ideology. It was just a a tool. And when you could get that meme or whatever, it, it's a memified cultural thing. And if you can get that into people's brains, then you can use that as part of this mass movement um, and then you can kind of apply it to try to get the politics you want or to use it as a political weapon, but not necessarily as an ideological weapon or, you know, a weapon that has to do in and of itself with any particular uh, law. Well, it's certainly not policy driven, right? It's not, you're right, it's not, there's, there's, a, there's a gap there. It's something else. But I do see it as very ideological. And uh, let's see how I can say this. Well, for one thing, culture, what are we talking about here? We're talking about micro-political ideas, right? How do you relate individually to, indi- you know, individual to individual? What are, what are we willing to accept? What are, where, what are the personal long lines we draw? And we're willing to enforce those lines at our level down here. We'll, you know, the, the woman who scowls at you for not wearing a mask is mm-hmm. engaging in a political act. She won't accept you as a, as a good human being at all if you don't wear that mask. And so that's a basic term of society. It's a basic political division that she's redrawing in her, you know, in, in, her, in her part as part of that cultural moment. Uh, so I just consider that micro-social or micro-political. Uh, and many of us have been talking about this for years, but not really seeing how it could apply to uh, tyranny so much, the tyrannical nature of, of this moment, because it is very tyrannical, I think. Though that's a wrong word, but it's just very coercive, very ugly, very, it's marginalizing people, it's, it's, it's shunning people, it's, all, it's doing all the things that they say they don't want to do. I mean, they judge people by their openness to others, and then they engage the biggest deplatforming and marginalization campaign in modern times. It's, a, it's quite an astounding ideological moment, but it does seem to fit with, to me with a basic left perspective. And I don't think libertarians have gotten this very well because I think libertarians always want to think of left and right in terms of their favorite binary, you know, tyranny versus freedom, right? That's what they like. I don't think politics is best represented in that, in a binary that way. I don't think it, it's even a binary situation. I think freedom is in the middle. 
it's one of the ways you can do a middle ground between opposing forces. And um, I think libertarians have got this probably completely wrong. And that's one of the reasons they're so feckless and, and of no consequence to modern society. That's a theory of mine. You know, I, I like to have an idea as the reason that they're so feckless. It could, may just be that young ideas are just a small number of people, and that's it. I mean, I, that, I'm willing to accept that as a criticism of my... Uh, but still, ideas have consequences, and I think libertarians have a number of things very, very wrong. And one of them is understanding, understanding the microsocial nature of the foundation of a political society. And we're I seeing think, that now. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that now. And it's astounding. It's actually a very exciting time. I'm actually enjoying this immensely. Really? I Sometimes I feel the energy of it. I'm, again, going back to the kind of the Vin Armani take on this is that you, you have to surf the wave. You can't, you can't just go up against it, plant and go, stop this. This is insanity. And I think that very strongly about the latest, you know, cultural outrage of the day of the you know, the Mr. Potato Head or whatever it is, or Dr. Seuss. Like, there's no point in going up to that and going, stop this insanity. Like, that's that's not where we're at. This is something that I've, I've um, put into some of my podcasts and writings before and probably uh, will do a lot more coming up that we're, you know, that we're in this moment of magical thinking and of getting to what you were talking about, a return of a certain kind of honor culture. And it's a particularly malignant kind in my perspective. It is shame without bounding and without like reputational contagion without bounding. It's, you know, society driven by that lady who is giving you a dirty look for not having a mask and, you know, and considering you impure, like literally you are impure, a virus spreading uh, degenerate, uh, sick, whatever it is, all of those labels that have attached to them a moral component, right? You are diseased, not just you have, you know, you have a, a condition or whatever that you're treating, but you are diseased and you going around without a mask, that's spreading that. And you see that way of thinking, not just with COVID, of course, you see it with that, but also with in the way that we are running our cancel culture system right now, which is that, you know, someone says something that other people think is inappropriate, and then everyone they've ever communicated with has to stand up and denounce them. Otherwise, they get infected by this, and they themselves become, you know, become scornful. And that's the other aspect of this honor culture that no longer... Um, that that is particularly malignant. Uh, it used to be that one of the breaks on that was that um, it was always acceptable to stand up for your bud in a bar fight. Uh, that didn't make you shameful, even if your buddy started it and he himself should pay some social consequences for, you know, for picking a fight or being an asshole or whatever. Nonetheless, you get in there and you go, hey, okay, you know, you, you it's okay for you to either stick up for him or whatever. And then if you want to talk to him in private and in private go, hey, buddy, man, you shouldn't have done that. That's fine. But you're allowed to stand up for the people you care about, uh, even under those circumstances. But not now. Uh, the particular form of honor culture we have doesn't permit people standing up for, you know, for, for uh, people who have tra transgressed. Um, so we have unlimited contagion and uh, very low tolerance for standing up for your buddies, which makes it, I think, uh, particularly nasty. 
And the left has for sure recognized the value of this particular change in culture and in acceptability. And man, are they using it hard. The, the trick is, you know, thinking about this, what, you know, what can you do that's not just standing there and go, stop, this is insanity, but actually some other form of magic. I was thinking about it like, you know, imagine that you arrive on the shores of America and you've got some you know, Incan prince who likes carving out hearts and throwing them in a volcano to appease the gods. One approach would be to take a rationalist, try to explain plate tectonics and <laughs> why, you know, right? You, you're laughing because you're like, no, that's not going to work, right? But it is something I do. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's something that a lot of libertarians would do. They'd be like, this is so irrational. Look at the statistics. Look at the data. Here's how plate te tectonics work, right? To totally uh, go on the spectrum, right? But like, no, what, what you have to do is bring muskets and war dogs, that's what's going to work. Yeah, honor is, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been thinking about honor cultures for a long time. Uh, honor cultures were absolutely vital for getting human beings above the tribal level to chieftain level to the state level. I mean, it's not, that's one of, the, one of the building blocks of the state and of civilization is the honor cultures. But usually as in the arc of a, you know the arc of the implementation of, of of civilization in this case the life of a civilization you move move beyond that foundation of honor culture which is right there in the uh, ten commandments and you go to an ethical culture where the commandments themselves and the legalistic nature of it and the universality of the rules and all that kind of stuff become to dominate our understanding and you know you've probably heard people talk about the difference between a dignity culture and a an honor culture right and the dignity culture is something we did have in the West generally with liberalism. Uh, that does seem to be gone. Uh, the dignity culture is pretty pretty weak right now and honor cultures have been revived and they seem to be reviving in a way that's decadent that I don't think it's about one of the things that honor cultures in the early days was about and that was about excellence. Because you didn't honor people randomly or for even obeying you know, you know, the, the, the priest or the shaman's rules those, uh, you know, or, or their goals, you obeyed them if they were successful, if they collected the most meat and berries and got the most production going so that the tribe could survive another, you know, and so the chief, that, I mean, we, I live in an area right now where they had the chiefdom and where they had a mass system of wealth redistribution entirely voluntarily using honor as the key and uh, the potlatch system. It's an astounding uh, system of uh, social organization that probably just evolved. Uh, but that's not what the current honor system is like. It's not about excellence and about creating things that help tribes survive. This is a very interesting form of warfare where it is, where death is one of the options. Uh, and it's becoming increasingly possible that we could have fighting in the streets of an astounding and frightening nature. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's an honor culture in which the way you accrue honor is putting the right pronouns in your bio. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I do think that there is a possibility of that, and that, I guess, gets us back to the idea of, uh, you know, of, of decline of nations and also of open secrets in the sense that I think that this is the, the sort of the open secret that more and more people are beginning to tune into, which is that 
or, you know, or, or knowledge, knowledge of general trends that we don't apply to ourselves, which is that every nation has a trajectory, every nation has an arc, almost every nation um, debases their currency to the point of collapse or near collapse. That's a universal that we think it couldn't happen here, that American exceptionalism is so strong, right? I think that that belief is now being challenged enough that, you know, the open secret that we're not so so special, that we don't have magic sauce that can indefinitely keep us together no matter what, I think people are beginning to clue into that. Yeah. Well, it is it, it is an interesting time because, you know, 40 years ago when I first got interested in political ideas and got rid of the ideas that I'd grown up with, I rejected them all and came up with, you know, libertarianism. Uh, one of the things that immediately interested me was the possibility of secession and reaccession as the formation of new political entities on the ash, you know, before we destroy the whole civilization, we might be able to arrange it so that secession could be the mechanism that we could get out of this mess. Because I saw a mess brewing because I saw what I saw what Social Security was doing. And, and I and I'm so old that uh, I got in before deficit spending was crazy. You know, it was just there, right? In the 19, in 1980, it was just there as a problem. But we had bigger fish to fry in 1980. I mean, we had a stagflation that we were just getting over. You know, there was just, we had Reagan was coming in, you know, it was all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, secession was still a very out there idea in 1980 or 84 when I was very interested in secessionary ideas. Now, all across the political spectrum, people are saying, oh, maybe we should secede. And part of it's just national kind of, divorce is the yeah, is the it, way I've heard it framed, which oh, I, I nice. kind of like. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, divorces I, because, are messy, but they're not necessarily violent. Right. Well, I mean, Czechoslovakia is now two countries, and they didn't have a that was out of velvet divorce, and it worked just really nicely. Now we have a bigger problem that we ha we have a federal government that is a major presence in the world is the backbone of is the backbone of the world in a sense, in several senses. So our divorce is gonna be the biggest, messiest divorce in human history, but we are not going to succeed in any of the directions that the Republicans or Democrats are proving it true. You know, sho you know shoving us, they want us to go with these directions, very different, but neither of them are gonna get rid of the solvency problem. Uh, and so I think that we really do have to go into bankruptcy and, you know, uh, that someday we'll think of the United States of the United States of America uh, under receivership, not under Congress assembled, but under receivership disassembling. Uh, that would be a way out, but it seems very unlikely still. I mean, this is really an out there idea still, because people, most Americans still think of themselves as Americans, even if they hate the other side, right? Yeah, and that, that hatred keeps growing, and not only that, but the like the cultural divide, and I think there was there was some recent survey about like what are the top ten concerns of Democrats and what are the top ten concerns of Republican voters, and completely different, like nothing. And the number one concern of the Democrat voters was the Republicans. Like four of the top ten were, you know, Trump supporters is a major concern, or white nationalism, which probably just codes to. We hate people who disagree with us, right? Um, right? And and others that were essentially along that that same line. So one side, at least, you know, half of their major concerns is the other 
among them. That doesn't bode well for anything but, you know, but that. And, you know, none of the concerns, as, as far as I can recall, of the top 10 of either of them was specifically, you know, something that's actually a train wreck to happen, like the debt or, you know, or Social Security or whatever, right? The, the concerns were almost entirely cultural or inter, interpersonal, really, um, with these other people who you just don't want to live with. Yeah, and it's very strange to be uh, a libertarian in this time because we're not really part of, I mean, at least I'm not part of either of those conversations. Though I know which side, if, if it came to guns, I know which side I'm picking up a gun with. It's, you know, it's not going to be the ones who want to take away my guns. That's, that's, I can, I can assure you. Uh, so, so that's, but that's, I'm hoping it doesn't come to that because I don't think that the direction is where, you know, Trumpians or, or where the old style Republicans want us to go. They, they are, they are real hopeless failures. These people, you know, the people who, op who oppose the left, which you call the right, uh, they are ridiculous. I mean, there's a sense in which there's just not much there there. They don't really have a good handle on the problems they're facing. I think that most, almost everybody is deluded about the nature of the problem they're facing. I, I think it's absolutely true that the the right as a resistance force certainly has been an absolute failure. Like they, the table was swept. The like the they got swept like that it's over like the the culture war where we are right now anyway and the war for the institutions from you know the government bureaucracy to you know to journalism to the academic world like to culture like tv and movies like they have the thinnest sliver of a of a grasp left which is i think why we see the you know, things taking root that are plainly insane, like the canceling Dr. Seuss or whatever, right? Like that happens at a moment when the right has zero power whatsoever over the culture. That doesn't happen, you know, uh, 20 years ago when they can still, you know, ha count on the, you know, the anchors for, or the, they can still count on the late night news hosts to, you know, to be making fun of this stuff. Now they can't count on that. They can't count on any any powerful cultural or other institutions to be putting a halt to this. So yeah, no, they, they, they they've been pathetic and they've lost. You know, it's hard to get too excited about Seuss. I mean, it's really easy to to laugh about Seuss. I mean, this is truly an amazing moment of stupidity. Uh, and it's funny. I mean, it really is truly funny that you know, on beyond Zebra is not going to be published by the people who make millions of dollars off of Dr. Seuss because somehow what he what Dr. Seuss was doing in that book apparently was always wrong and hurtful to pe to people. Uh, I will I guess I haven't researched it enough. I don't see how it's possible to be true. So maybe you understand how that's possible. I don't I literally don't understand how that's possible. I I don't think it matters. Like I think that trying to I think I see the right fall into this trap. I think trying to analyze and, you know, and pick apart the absurdity or the stupidity of the latest thing that, that has been canceled or that the left has gone after, I think that that's just a trap. I think that you you just have to go, oh, you people are insane. There's zero point in trying to 
Like, again, I think that's like trying to convince the Incan prince that plate tectonics is what's causing the volcano. Uh, I don't actually know if that's the right <laughs> cause of volcanoes, but uh, I think it has something to do with it somewhere. But like that, you know, trying to convince the Incan prince that he needs to understand geology instead of, you know, instead of thinking in terms of his religious viewpoint. I, to me, that's like, it's just a non-starter. This is what they're doing. They're going to run over everything that they possibly can. And while you're sitting there analyzing why it's dumb that they've run over Dr. Seuss, they're running over another four things, right? You you need to take a different approach. And I wouldn't, like, I don't anymore even bother getting close to the weeds of what is the particular rationale behind a particular cancellation. It It doesn't matter. It's not the point. This is something they've wanted to go after, maybe because it's a conservative, you know, who said something that they don't like. It doesn't matter. Like, it, this is just, this is the the freight train, the wave, whatever it is, and this thing is happening. And, you know, a, a different kind of approach is going to be needed that isn't, hey, look at how dumb this is. That that approach hasn't worked. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know what to do uh, because I I haven't been able to get over the dumbness of it. Um, though I do have to ask here, um, I, I, I don't. There's a phrase that the uh, far left, the really wacko, murderous left, NFA people and others have said in the in the last several years is the liberals get the bullet first. And Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, was a liberal. His message in book after book was. I mean, I believed in nearly. Every, I mean, I agreed with him on almost everything that he said. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the you know the stars upon thars, that whole line. I mean, they're just oh, you know, Horton hears a who. These were, these were good messages for children because they were liberal messages and they help people not be bigots, right? I mean, it just gave children a vocabulary to be ego transcendent and to have a moral point of view. I mean, I thought these were great books. What on earth could be the pro, uh, provocation from of a conservative in that he was a liberal? This seems to me like leftists turning on the liberals now because they've oh, so routed the, the the conservatives. I think you're completely right about that. And I think that, so this is, uh, I had a conversation with uh, Michael Shermer. He's the editor of Skeptic Magazine and very much a, a liberal, but kind of a more, I wouldn't say a classical liberal. He's not like libertarian, but classical liberal in the sense that a strong belief in liberal values, in values of equality and justice and, you know, treat everyone fairly and, you know, intellectualism. Um, the the progressive left, the wackadoo, as you say, radical left, has zero interest in any of those things. Do, do process, right? No, we're not doing that, right? Like all of the pil pillars of liberalism that, you know, that are kind of, I guess, the, the, the foundations of liberalism as opposed to what we're calling right now a liberal, those are all under attack and have been for a long time. Um, and, and they have to be attacked because, you know, because you can't, you can't completely run the table and get anyone to say anything you want if people are doing these legacy things like pointing to the universe and going, yeah, actually men and women are different. No, no, like that's, that, that gets in the way of your project. Those are the people who have to be put up against the wall and shot first because they're people who are still appealing 
to those, you know, those liberal values um, and an intellectualism, right? The intellectuals always get it first in the communist revolutions too, right? Well, yeah. Uh, so are we up against communists? I mean, they're not communists exactly. They have a slightly different endgame here. What is that endgame? So I'm, I'm actually fairly influenced by, um, do you know Jesse Kelly? No. Radio host um, and, uh, and commentator generally. Um, and he, you know, he calls himself an anti-communist. Um, and his description of this is communism, but he's understanding of the fact that it's not communism in the sense of it being strictly, you know, an economic program to, you know, to redistribute the wealth, but that it is, I think he calls it a religion of domination. Um, and that's what's happening. This is a religion of domination. It's going to roll over everything it, it can. There is no point of satiation for this. And I actually think um, Dave Smith does a good job of like describing how it's kind of a cultural Marxism, or maybe that's Jesse Kelly too, how all that they've done is they've substituted the, you know, th those, those appeals to fairness that were class fairness, and they've, they've put that onto social things. So it's, you know, it's you're oppressed and aggrieved, not economically, because that's a hard case to make here in the West, but you're oppressed and aggrieved by the legacy of slavery, by racism, by sexism, by bigotry of various sorts. And so that's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against that kind of cultural inequality uh, by the fact that there are too many of this skin color at this university and not enough of this other skin color at this university. So it's not, you know, economic classes, but it's, you know, it's identitarian. So it's a Marxism applied to identity politics, maybe. This is my way of trying to interpret uh, his thing. But I, I do see that thing happening. Does, does that make sense as the kind of moment we're in? Well, sure. That's, that is actually kind of a that fits with what I sort of gathered too. And we, and you know, Jordan Peterson talks about cultural Marxism. There's a Stephen Hicks. They they all talk about the postmoderns and why they turn this direction uh, into matters not primarily economic, but matters of identity. Um, it also explains why I'm so unsympathetic, because I am on a, in a several senses an individualist, and my commonality with others is not my identity. And the idea that I would identify primarily as a white person is insane. Uh, I just, I mean, I don't have that in me. Uh, it's not my interest. I uh, often talk a lot about my uh, my actual ethnic heritage because I'm one of the rare people in America that does like more, more than 96% genetically in my group. But it's partly a joke uh, for the same reason I think that Mencken often made racist jokes is that for an individualist, one's the very persistence of commonality as a dominating force of our lives is mm -hmm. funny because there is a, there's a discontinuity here. There's, there's a, there's a tension. And uh, I mean, Megan had some, you know, privately had a lot of awful racist and ugly ethnic jokes. And he was, he was, and he talked about ethics, ethnicities a lot and made fun of ethnicities a lot, pretty much every one of them. Uh, but he was an individualist. I mean, not very different from me. And he didn't think that, you know, any of the aspersions he might cast on a group 
had anything to do with the rule of law. He wanted the rule of law. Uh, and, uh, and, but one of the reasons he, I think one of the reasons he did that over and over was not because he was deep down a racist or, a, you know, a, an ethnic bigot, though he was pro-German, uh, and that was unfortunate. Uh, but it's partly because there's this fun, ten there's this fun tension for any individualist to really, to realize the extent to which we are genetically, partly genetically determined. So we, we can't pretend that we're all self-created, fully formed of ourselves people. We aren't. We are the people that we came from, right? And uh, we don't stray very far from our heritages. The, I think the, that individualism is one of those core values of liberalism that is, by the progressive left, certainly in the way. Um, that is not in any way, shape, or form part of the project that they are embarked upon. You can't have a religion of domination with individualism at the heart of it. Um, it doesn't work because individual people will stand up and go, hey, what you're doing, you know, stop that or whatever. They'll they'll object. They'll say, you can't judge me as part of that group and run over me. No, this is the, we are in the, the, the mass movement mob moment and individualism is is not a value of that wackadoo left at all and but it is the wackadoo left is dominant culturally so True. i mean we go we, i mean we want to think of them as marginal because it probably is no more than quarter of the population <laughs> but that's a lot of people <laughs> and uh i mean of the of the people who count anyway the people who really make uh cultural ideas stick generally uh for reasons that you know, Taleb talked about, you know, the the, the problem of the uh, the uh, what, what's his term what's intolerance, sort of how he showed how intolerance can take over, and I think right. that that's very much what happened. Yeah. Actually, one of the really cool little memorable bits of his book where he showed like a tiny little intolerant minority in a, yeah. a larger group, and then it takes over that, and it takes over right. that. It's the and problem of the intransigent minority, is what he was. That, that's, that's the word. The yes, term. the intransigent minority. Yeah. Right. And very good term. Yeah. Yeah, it's very useful. Uh, but these people who we don't agree with and they loathe us, um, they look at individualism as a form of oppression and as domination, right? That's what they say it is. Uh, I don't v I'm Violence not... probably would be the, the term. It's a form of violence, right? Yeah. Which is just insane. I, I, I really do think it has very little to do with reality. They don't think in terms of transactional clarity which is, I think, one of the great benefits of being an individualist is that you try to figure out, if you have a uh, social tendency, you try to figure out what are the actual units of it? What are the interactions that make this tendency to happen? And that's what you know, individuals have always done, is that, that their explanatory technique of individualist, uh, methodological individualism uh, then supports their general approach of a different kind of individualism. But, uh, but individualism has always been about liberation i mean that's the, that's the idea is but they also don't take all forms of pressure uh, the same that's the big thing about libertarians is that they think actual force is more important than a scowl but obviously a scowl can do a lot of work it, it can and this uh it, this is to me where the chance is to fight back right intransigence is powerful, but it doesn't necessarily work just for one side. 
it works for anyone. You get enough people walking into a store without masks who are looking at people who have them on or even stronger yelling at them, as uncomfortable as that is, and that changes things the other way, right? It's hard to think of freedom being driven forward by intransigence, but it certainly has been at times, right? And even individual liberty. Intolerance. This is the tricky thing for libertarians. This is something I'm working on an article about this right now. I think I'm going to try to boot up a substack um, with just this theme as the first one, which is that, um, you know, it, it may be time for, uh, it, though it's very hard, I think that libertarians tend to also be libertarian culturally and individually and tolerant. Like, you do you, I'll do me. Right, like right. that's an ethos that we tend to have. I like that. I call it in the in the article I'm working on kind of bourgeois values, which is, you know, you're a shopkeeper. Someone comes into your store. They want to buy a shoe. You don't care their religion. You don't care about their, you know, their politics. You don't care about their color. Guy comes in and wants to try on a lady's shoe. You don't care. He's got money. He's paying. Whatever, man. You know, give me my money. Get out of here. It's all good. Right. But um, in the era we're in, where that kind of culture isn't the norm, and where people who have a different culture and who are that intransigent, intolerant minority are running the table, then maybe you need to start thinking about pushing back with intolerance of your own and stubbornness of your own and saying, okay, you know, I'm I'm no longer going to shop at any store that's deplatforming, you know, people or whatever stores don't deplatform, but like I'm I'm actively going to divest from any companies that are acting as part of the cancel culture mob because I, I need to push back against that. Or I'm gonna take even stronger steps. I actually called up um uh, the, was it the Radisson? I don't know. There's a hotel in Canada right now that is being used essentially as a quarantine facility slash like some sort of jail for people who are coming back into Canada and, you know, and, um, have to stay there for a while. Radisson, I believe. I, hopefully I don't get that wrong because I don't want this to go out and slander a, an innocent company. Whoever is listening should look this up. But, um, their hotel and people who come in, it's at the airport, are required to stay there for three days while they wait a second COVID test after they've already had one before they even get to come back into the country. But they're essentially jailed there for three days. And I called up the receptionist to try to confirm this and also to say, hey, how do you feel about the fact that your hotel is being used as a jail? This was an uncomfortable conversation. She eventually hung up on me. Um, i not used to doing any of these. I would, in ordinary circumstances, not want to be anywhere near calling up a receptionist and essentially harassing her. I was as polite as I could be, but also firm about the fact that, hey, you guys have turned your hotel into a jail. This is kind of awful and awful from you for a PR standpoint. And I'm not going to pretend it's not happening. And I'm going to just go full forward and say, basically, shame on you. Um, I don't like that word. I don't like being part of a shame mob. I don't like being intolerant. I don't see any other way out of this and, uh, and of arresting the tide that isn't 
using those tools uh, and getting the people who would be just riding that tide of tyranny to go, whoa, okay, maybe I don't just get to ride this wave of my hotel turning from a hotel to a jail. Maybe someone's going to call me out on that, and maybe I need to think about that. And whether my one call has any effect at all, probably not, right? But if 100 people do it, it will. Yeah, I've had those same thoughts. My biggest fear is also a possible hope. And I think that it's, but it's on a much a much nastier level. Uh, if the Democrats follow through on really attacking the Second Amendment, they may find that the feedback they get is not the feedback they wanted. Uh, because I think the next step will be intransigence. And uh, they'll be met with force. And this is where this is the this is the this is where I, I think that the possible beginning of violence happens is if the Democrats think they can get away with the next level of gun control. But from their perspective, though, it might be worth doing that because then they can point to the reaction and go, oh, we need to crack down. In in some ways, I, I see what the left is engaged in right now as the kind of kick the dog under the table until they bite and then have it put down strategy, right? Treat. Tr- that is precisely what they're doing, yes. That's a great yeah. way of putting it. And yeah, that's what they'll do. I don't know if it'll work anymore because at a certain point, BS doesn't play, right? I mean, there are limits to how far you can push a rhetorical or propagandistic strategy. Uh, But it'll play for some people, surely, because I know people who will look at the same bit of information I saw and say, oh, the riots were just great. They were just peaceful protests. Just a few fires here and there. Why would you complain about a few fires on a street? I mean, it's a public street. You can't, you know, you can't stop people from, what? I can't, I mean, the the amazing thing about the violence of the last year uh, and just how my Democratic and Republican friends differed on interpreting the same things they saw saw on TV was astounding. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's different realities. I very much tuned in uh, when Trump got elected to the uh, Scott Adams point of view that there are two different movies playing that maybe we share some base reality, but Democrats and Republicans are watching two very, very different movies uh, and, you know, interpreting them completely differently. To one side, it was mostly peaceful. To the other side, you know, lighting on fire a building with people inside it, not so peaceful, right? I mean, to one side right now, the, the Capitol riots are an insurrection, a coup, right? Like that's the movie that they're watching. And I don't yes. know, it. there there doesn't seem to have to be that strong a connection with reality. This is part of when you, you know, when you completely control all of the, you know, all of the institutions is that you can drive a larger wedge between what seems to me anyway to be the underlying reality and narrative, right? And to some extent, yeah. um, the, I think I mentioned this in the the you know in that episode um, the the size of that gap that you can drive between narrative and reality is to some extent a measure of your power. If you're an absolute dictator, you can tell people that the sky is green, and nobody can say anything about it. Did you watch the CNN talking head uh, talk about the various uh, weapons they'd confiscated from the from the mobs at the Capitol Hill riots? No, so I didn't speak. see that. And at one point, 
he was descri describing the weapons that they had had and you know evidence of the violent nature was the weapons they had none of the guns were fired by the way there was not one example of a gun being fired but they talked about weapons a lot and one of the weapons he mentioned was a flagpole they actually used on air the fact that somebody had a flagpole was evidence of being armed and, with uh, a with a flag on it no just oh, a flagpole. okay yeah. Though actually that wasn't mentioned. That's a really good question. I don't know because I was just listening to the CNN person. I don't even remember which one of those yabos it was. But that was the argument they were making is the evidence for weaponry was a flagpole. And you know that there's something weird going on. And it seems like a normal person would realize it too. Uh, but then, you know, I'm so far from being a normal person that I can't tell. I, I think that one of the sort of the so the flip side of the instant availability of all possible information and arguments is that it's also much easier now to find data and arguments to back up your priors, right? I actually got into this argument a little bit with uh, Andrew uh, Kelman, who is um, a, uh, a fairly well-known statistician, and I was arguing or trying to argue, um, he was pushing back or just didn't believe it, that we've reached a point where we're so overloaded with access to, you know, to information and arguments and whatnot, that we can always confirm our priors, that we can always find evidence that will back up what we already believed. So learning isn't really happening, that the kind of the, to be technical, the Bayesian update process is broken. Uh, because you always come out with your priors confirmed and sometimes strengthened, uh, and you know, and it, and that actually is tricky for me because it's hard to think what is the what is the valuable what is the the alternative to that any kind of censoring of you know of of bad data uh, is you know is an immediately a non-starter for me as a solution. I think that that just you know the the powerful will just pick the data that they want and that will be the official data. There's no there's no belief that the institutions that we have are trustworthy to provide an honest, neutral evaluation of the data that everybody should just nod their heads and go along with you know there there is no right like there's no world there's not a world we live in right now where you could just be like oh yeah let's trust the new york times to tell us what the truth is like that's not a world we live in uh none of those institutions none of them right so then what is the solution to the problem of having everyone able to always find something that backs up their their view, even if their view seems to have diverged very widely from the underlying reality, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, we see this in so many weird areas. It's not just, you know, it's just not riots and it's not, you know, major policy considerations and it's not just Dr. Seuss. It's not, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And it's been in some of the debates we've been having for the last 20 years, like climate change. I mean, the IPCC cooked up a very famous paper on tree ring, uh, tree ring uh, studies that sh allegedly showed a uh, hockey stick of right. temperatures. At the same time, and they used some studies and they didn't use others. There were at the same time other studies that showed that the, the, the evidence didn't show that at all. Uh, the, the, there was no hockey stick involved. Uh, the 
the uh, general temperature levels have shifted around in a more interesting way. And uh, we then caught that the background information is that you had some of these people who were actually actively working against some forms of data that were valid data, that were just as valid as theirs, but they actually were suppressing the debate. How do we get rid of the global, you know, the medieval warming period, you know? Uh, and sometimes, and I, I'm looking at this because I'm not a climate scientist, but I've been, you know, I worked, I've been reading about it since I was a kid, climate change. Of course, I was interested when they were talking about uh, uh, the return of the ice age. And so I've been interested right. in that for a long time. But, you know, the mid 2000s, I basically said, oh, yeah, there must be global warming because I couldn't believe that scientists could be so wrong, right? I just couldn't believe that that many scientists could be that wrong, right? I just, it was just, it was, I was incredulous at, at the very flame and I basically bought into it for a few years. And then the, the email scandals uh, came out and then I went back to my roots in Ice Age explanation and what we were learning about the end of the Ice Age. And this turns out to be an astounding situation of, of huge, and this is where I, one of the reasons I've been interested in your work and statistics is because I look at all the data that they've collected about, you know, the contradictory data about temperatures over the last 200 years or so. And that's a lot of data. And it's very hard for somebody like me to parse. I mean, there really is, you know, I mean, this could, who do I believe? I don't really know exactly. But one thing I do know is there was a big datum. I mean, it's, it's not even data in a sense. It's a datum was the ice age and how the ice age behaved and how different the Holocene has been from the Pleistocene. We've had a long time with fairly stable climate. And that's not common on, on this planet for, you know, at least during the Pleistocene period where there was a long period of fluctuating temperatures and, and the ice ages, uh, you know, interglacials and all that kind of stuff. And the end was catastrophic in a very strange way. And I realized, and I've known for a long time, that what they're talking about global warming now has nothing to do with the end of the ice age. That the attempts to shoehorn CO2 uh, as an explanatory device into the end of the ice age is ridiculous. And so what I'm, I often get to these controversies where we fight over whose data is correct and which expert to believe. And then I just looked at one big datum, just one big data point is I guess, the, is, is that what, the, is that what, is datum and data point the same thing, by the way? You're the expert. I don't know. I'll, I'll, roll, I'll roll with that. You roll with that? Good. I'm yeah. glad. I've, I've been confused for such a long time. Um, but, and I realized if something big doesn't fit, then I need to explain the big thing before I go along with the rest of your theory. And that's where I am on so much of modern debate is that they seem to be burying evidence and they seem to be burying a big counterfactual or a big anomaly. And uh, for modern climate science, they seem to be burying the ice ages. And I need them to explain very well ice ages before I'm going to buy any of their theories on current climate trends. And that's the kind of level of analysis that I deal with. And I think many people are in that situation where they feel or intuit, or maybe they scientifically appraise a problem with a paradigm that they confront and that it seems to be burying evidence of a huge nature. And that's where I'm at with a lot of issues. And so I just don't believe many experts anymore on, like, so the coronavirus. I feel, <laughs> I intuit, I see information that doesn't get proper uh, 
proper study from the main from what is considered good information and it just stinks is that i get a whiff of something very wrong almost in every profession every major paradigm seems corrupt i think that what we see and i don't know maybe it's always been this way in in sort of the history of humans and maybe we just more tuned into it now or we're in a place where information spreads and is more viral and infects more people more quickly but um the narrative is the narrative and once the narrative is laid down in people's minds there is really nothing that can be done to to get that out of there you know regardless of to what degree human beings are actually affecting the the climate on earth people will forever believe or at least for a very very long time that you know 98% of scientists believed x you know um or you know or that the hockey stick chart is some reflection of an underlying reality um as opposed to you know a a a, a graph that was cooked up uh in many ways and it was right but again it it could be the case that we are significantly affecting the climate but regardless of that and regardless of any of the reality un- underlying the covid stuff a narrative is laid down everybody adopts it and then anybody who goes against it is marginalized and that's where we're at and so in some extent science itself is broken um because science depends upon, again, updating your priors, right? And when it's all about the narrative, then, you know, if the narrative is right, I guess that's a good thing. But um, the narrative, the narrative in the fog of war is always wrong. That we know too, right? That, you know, narratives that come out of rapidly changing uh, situations are, you know, almost always wrong and then that gets laid down and that's what we're stuck with um certainly lots of stuff having to do with corona that um that were laid down as the official truths early on uh, about origin of it or whatever that were clearly suspect but that's the official view and and that's that and going against the narrative is tricky as opposed to all that as opposed to all that what i hear or what I see in the world is all these avenues are all these avenues for inquiry. It turns out there's a lot of things we don't know. And figuring these things out is actually such an exciting thing. We're actually at a moment in history where we're learning amazing amounts every day about some amazingly different things. And this narrative talk, this insistence that a paradigm be maintained rather than challenged is i think just a a, is depressing because it dissuades us from actually looking at the world and seeing how amazing it is this is an astounding time to be alive because right now i think we could actually learn some major you might say civilizational basic things that no one's ever known before Uh, we might learn some really important truth about reality but we're not going to learn it if we're behaving like tribes fighting over our religions. And, uh, you know, I'm not an acolyte of any religion and I'm willing to give up, you know, all sorts of things. I've changed my mind on a number of things in the last several years. I'm even willing to admit that the deep state, which I think we can define and say, yes, it exists, uh, that the deep state 
may be crazy because it's like how the how to you know how 9000 computer in 2001 it's been given a contradictory agenda and it's gone a little wackadoo or it's gone crazy and dangerous because it has maybe it has an important secret that it's, it's maintaining and maybe that it's has the best of all possible motives for many of its participants. Maybe they look and see what the possibilities of them not keeping their secrets and not doing these things as an excuse, a reason, actually a command for them to even kill individual human beings in a, in a, in a liquidationist kind of way because they see the truth is so big. I'm willing to admit there might be that secret truth. So I'm willing to, I'm willing to throw a lot of things out if I have the evidence, but I'd like to see some evidence before I lum on to the deep state. Let's just put it that way. Speaking of that stuff and maybe bringing things back around, if, you know, if one of those secrets is UFOs and if they're leaking things out, if this isn't just a <clears throat> sort of a letting out fake information for whatever reasons situation, if they're kind of prepping people for the revelation, the growing revelation that we're not alone in the universe, what kind of effect do you think that will have on human culture and thought? Like, will it actually be the great upheaval that that those agencies might realistically fear? Or will it land more with a, with a oh, wow, that's cool, um, back to, you know, back to our regularly scheduled program? Yeah, well, that's that is the big question, isn't it? Uh, it may not be, by the way. Uh, you know, they say it may not be aliens. It, it, it may not be that the big secret may be something different. I I, I don't want to leave that open because right. I think there are a few other secrets that they could be. I mean, the alien thing could actually be the construct, the disinformation that they've been pushing on us to uh, to to get us distracted from what they're really. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have access to the information. So we have to look at all the possibilities, right? So there's, there's that. Uh, and I'm kind of skeptical too, just like everybody else is. But um, I think they do know one thing and that what at the level of UFOs and at the level of civilizational foundations, people are very religious and they know that religions are unpredictable in certain moments. And they're very, very afraid of what Hobbes was afraid of, was religious enthusiasm. And uh, so that's why they want to control things. And it's not as if the deep state or the people who, you know, really rule the world don't know that there aren't moments of singularity in history that can change things dramatically. And they could be deathly afraid of, you know, even technological advance. I mean, that's one theory that ufologists talk about is that the truth about UFOs is that if everybody had the technology is that any one person could destroy the world, right? If you have the key to just infinite power, then anyone who's crazy could destroy everything, right? That, that's, that's the, that you call, that's the armament, the armament singularity is what I call it. The moment mm -hmm. when anyone can kill anyone else or any single person can kill everyone. And at that moment, why would they trust? They wouldn't trust normal people. So they'd want to manage us very carefully. And that could be the thing they're doing. I don't know mm. if that's true, but let's say that's not even aliens. It's not even UFOs. That could be the, actually the big secret they're keeping is that they know that technology at a certain point leads us to that kind of singularity. The moment when 
it's too hard. We're, we're, we're back into the war of all against all on a sort of state of nature level, except now everybody's a god. Well, that's frightening. Oh, super frightening. And that is actually maybe the explanation for everything. You don't need to bring aliens. You don't need to bring UFOs. Though that is a problem. UFOs are a problem in our mindscape. But it could just be that. It could be one of those. The other one, big singularity coming up is the medical singularity. What happens when it's very possible with a lot of investment to make people live for 150 years or 200 years or 300 years? Well, you can't have every yabble in the world doing that, right? Uh, because a lot of these people are just sucks, sucks of resources. Uh, and so their attitude would be then, okay, the rich people, that's good people. We can have this technology, but they can't. They have to die. And uh, that's another possibility that could be lurking behind the whole coronavirus thing. I think that we have to consider the possibility that there are agenda out there at the highest reaches to prevent the medical singularity from being a problem. So they... How, how does that how do how does that work with the how draw the like connection there with corona well what are they doing with all that gene therapy what are they trying to do they're trying to control us perhaps i mean that's what that's what the far reaches of the of the conspiracy realm right now are talking about you listen to alex jones or or david ike and they'll talk about this is a plan a plan scamdemic uh that was designed so that they could get genetic technology rolled out to nearly every person on the planet so nearly every person on the planet can be controlled with 5g i mean there's all these various theories none of which i can appraise right i i don't have any competence in this realm but i can realize that that would be a problem if a medical singularity was right down the road right hmm. because we can't have everybody thinking they can live forever that's not a possibility that would be chaos yeah i'm I'm much more, maybe the word is prosaic about the explanation of the vaccine stuff that um, uh, pharmaceutical companies like to sell lots of stuff <laughs> and they'd be happy to, to, to jab you at, you know, whatever the cost is per jab as often as they possibly can. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I can actually extrapolate from there into some fairly dark territory, but um but but like but I hadn't considered the sort of the alternative. But who 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 knows in terms? Yeah, of I don't have that, and that's one of the happening. things that I find interesting about uh, these extreme theories. These is that I don't have I don't have the data to disprove them, and you I would used to just ridicule them as not likely, but now there's a word in uh, ancient philosophy called apache, uh, where you uh, you pointedly don't decide, you do not judge the idea that your liberation from belief is one of your goals, is that you can consider an idea without having to judge it. If you don't have the data, don't make a big fool of yourself or don't go along with the mob. That's the skeptic, that was in the Hellenistic period, that was the skeptic's argument. And now I don't think that we need to commit to a complete skepticism that we know nothing. It's just that when you don't know something, we don't, we don't need to pretend that we don't. And that's my Absolutely. basic, that's my basic attitude to, all these wackadoo theories, all those strange stuff of the world. Uh, and because I know that we're reaching singularity points on a number of social movements, for instance, AI is where we get this idea of the singularity. That's a Kurzweil's idea, is that at the moment where, what is the moment of, uh, the Kurzweil talked about, the moments where uh, in the artificial intelligence can recreate and reproduce themselves, right? That's mm -hmm. the, 
That's the moment where they can learn and they can reproduce themselves. That's the great singularity of our civilization, which is just basically the base, the same idea from Samuel Butler's uh, Arahuan of, of machine evolution, that the, the next form of evolution is machinery and mm -hmm. that that's a danger. That was a big thing about the great, great utopian satire uh, Arahuan. Uh, and uh, it, he read Darwin, and his first thought was, oh, machines, that's our next level of evolution. And that was not the direction Darwin was going. <laughs> that was where Samuel Butler went. And I think we should consider that possibility. And since we know that some singularities are coming, what those mean for us are, is something that should be on our radar, at the very least. And not all the stuff about Dr. Seuss and how he may have offended somebody who didn't have a star on Mars. I don't oh know. no, that's just that's just bait. Yeah, no, yeah. Com completely <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah, but it the, gets it, but it gets in the way of intelligent people thinking about important things. It it does though. I think in part that's because because people on the reactive right and and in the broader culture are so busy going, oh my God, this is insane, right? Like. I think that we need to learn not to take the bait or to push back and, you know, and okay, you're canceling this. We're going to send 10,000 people to the headquarters of Macmillan or whatever the publisher is or whatever. And, you know, and literally scream at the employees as they walk out the door, like ugly, horrible stuff, right? Don't want to do it. But like, I think those are the, when it comes to this stuff, either ignore it, it's bait, whatever, it's irrelevant, or or become extraordinarily intransigent and intolerant and vocal, so vocal that the next time a publishing house goes, you know, maybe it's time to throw out, you know, Mark Twain again or whatever, that, you know, that they know that if they do that, there's going to be an angry mob with pitchforks outside the publishing building, and they're not going to be able to get home for dinner that night, right? Like, but but an in between where you're just where you just have people going oh my god this is so horrible like that does yeah that that just distracts right so either you need a fighting back strategy that works or you need to ignore that and focus on you know on those other things that you're talking about or on the fact that we're already bankrupt and you know and and we're going over the cliff and there's nothing that that's going to stop us from crashing to the ground we just haven't realized it yet Right, right. You know, there's nothing more freeing than free fall until that last moment. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh... Well, I think that that was that was fun talking to you, Matt. Do we have do we have something here? I I think we have something. I think that was a really good conversation. Very okay. happy with it. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Well, that's the end of this podcast. We strayed a little bit far from uh, the black box idea, which uh, so intrigued me. You really should go to Matt's most recent podcast, The Filter. Look him up. I think there might be more than one The Filter podcast out there, but Matt Asher is the man to look for. That episode about black boxes, UFOs, and uh, a fistful of dung is really worth your time. This is the Locofoco Netcast. You can find us at locofoco.net. I blog at workman.com. That's workman with an I, not an O. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can also find me at locofoco.locals.com, and someday I'll actually try to get that into a paying proposition. Let's see. So visit me on the web at workman, workman with an I, not an O, on Gab, on MeWe, 
on Facebook for that matter, on Twitter, even Twitter. I am part of our culture. Okay, let's strike the match for uh, enlightenment. Shall we? Thank you.